Welcome to Faith Seeking Understanding. I'm your host, John Green. We're looking at the lessons appointed for today in the common Revised Common Lectionary, and that is June the 20th, 2021. It's a Sunday edition of the podcast. So we've had a busy week this week. I'll tell you what, I know other friends and uh, people that I've worked with throughout the years whenever I've done pastoral care work with uh, older people that they have lots and lots of doctor's appointments, and so there's a lot to keep up with. Well, I'm not at that place personally, but with Will at having had this um, traumatic brain injury and now recovering from that. It, it feels like there's an appointment somewhere every single day. We did get some great news this week. We went to a neuro-ophthalmologist because he's had some vision problems in his left eye. And the good news is is that he said it's, there's a drop of blood in there and it's, it's um, dissipating now. And it'll soon go away and he'll have um, his vision will be back to normal. Um, He'll have a couple of blind spots, upper left and upper right, it seems, uh, in his field of vision. But other than that, he'll be perfectly okay as far as vision is concerned. And everything else seems to be falling into place 100%. Um, it's been an interesting time this whole last what, three months almost now. Um, it's been interesting, to say the least. It's, it's allowed us, Will and me, to rebuild our relationships uh, with one another. It wasn't that it was broken ir- irretrievably, but... But there was a lot of frustration there. Um, I was ready for him to move on in life and kind of do some other things and, and wasn't convinced he was going to be able to get there because he just didn't seem to have matured enough. And this has changed him and me, and we both needed to be changed. That's the honest truth. And so it's, we spent a lot of time together because, we, well, he can't drive anywhere, and so we, he goes everywhere we go, which has been a really great blessing. Um, we've really become friends and so it's been a good thing we've seen a lot of people this week we've done a lot of things we did some hiking even uh, been working out um, at home with light bands uh, and it's been really good it, it's just it's it's a testimony to God's goodness and his greatness too frankly because um, the like I said the, the, I think last week I mentioned this or maybe it was the week before the neuro doctor said you know nobody expected this to happen nobody expected you to make this kind of recovery your outlook wasn't just bleak it was terrible and so you know we knew that from the first day going on but but we both believed Suzanne and I both believed that we had heard something from God and so it was reflecting on, on that a lot this week um, and because it's Father's Day and so the but the, the crazy thing was is that that there were a lot of people who were along on this journey with us praying for us keeping up with it on Facebook and they believe too, you know, and, and so it was the faith of, of God's people that, that in so many ways carried us and their prayers carried us so much. And so I, I can't say that God exceeded expectations in the sense that I expected a full recovery. But what I can say was the rapidity, how quickly he did it, 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 it astounds me. I mean, I, you know, yes, I expected this, but no, I no, in no way did I expect it to happen so quickly. Um, God just, you know, it, it was like, all right, so that you have unbelief too, John. And your unbelief is you, you've prepared yourself for like two years of, uh, of this whole thing to get back to any semblance of normality. And wow, it's amazing what God has done. I mean, some days you just look and you think, well, you know, how's this going to go badly? Because it's gone so perfectly well. From the beginning, it's just, it's incredible. And so we just stand in amazement. 
at what God's done. And, and that's kind of the theme for what we got going on today. We have 1 Samuel 17, the first 49 verses of that uh, chapter. And what it is is the story of David and Goliath. And what's truly amazing, this is not the entire chapter, but like I said, it's first 49 verses. So there are 48 verses that lead up to the battle, and the battle is literally one verse. I mean, there's just not much there as far as what happens. And it's the same in the book of the Revelation when you see this, the, the final battle at Armageddon. When you see that, what happens is, is that the both battle lines draw up, and then poof, it's done. It's over with. God comes back and the whole thing ends. That's roughly the story here in First Samuel. There's a, there's a lot going on, um, you know, because we've got to remember that David has been sort of secretly anointed as the next king of Israel because God has rejected Saul, and yet Saul is still the king. And so what we've got is, is the Philistines gathered their armies for battle against Israel, and what we're told is they were gathered at Soko, which belongs to Judah and encamped between Soko and Azekah to Ephes Damim. So what you've got is the Philistine army is encamped in the land. They've conquered that part of the land, and it's in, in Judah, which is close now to Jerusalem. But this is prior to Jerusalem becoming the main city and where the temple is. The temple has yet to be built. That's built during uh, Solomon's time, David's son. And so it's the, they're, they're in Judah, in the territory of Judah, and the Philistines control this place. And so they've camped there, and Saul and the men of Israel were gathered, and they were encamped in the valley of Elah and drew up in a line of battle against the Philistines. So the Philistines are standing on one mountain, and Israel is on another mountain, and a valley is between the two of them. Well, nobody wants to give up the high ground. It's, it's not a great thing to fight down in the valley unless you can get everybody down into the valley because you're sitting ducks if you go down into the valley. And so there's sort of a standoff going on here with both of them on separate mountains. And then there came from the camp of Philistines a champion called Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. He's about nine feet tall. <laughs> um, it, it's it, Unbelievable how big this guy is. And there, there is actually some, some evidence that there were indeed um, some giants in the land of the Philistines who lived just on the other side of the Dead Sea from uh, Israel. So there, there was actually, there is evidence that there were giants in that land at that time. Now, whether it's a nine-foot giant, I have no earthly idea. Um, there have been certainly a lot of speculation about how this happened. Malcolm Gladwell recently wrote a book about this whole thing and suggested, yes, he could have been that large, probably not quite as large as nine feet. But there, there's this phenomenon of giantism that that there could have been this big guy. Now, the problem is those big giants, people with giantism, have a lot of physical weaknesses, let's say. where So you could beat them with stealth and speed. And they would also have some physical issues that would make them more vulnerable, let's say, to something like what happens here in this story. Well, you know, six of one half dozen another, there's this huge guy <laughs> who comes out from the Philistines and he has a helmet of bronze on his head and he's armed with a coat of mail and the weight of the coat of mail that he has on is 5,000 shekels of bronze. That's 157 pounds. That is the heaviest weighted vest ever in existence. 
I mean, it's a, think about that. Think about wearing a 157-pound vest. So here he comes with this coat of mail on this, that, that weighs probably more than David. <clears throat> and he had bronze armor on his legs and a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders. The shaft of the spear was like a weaver's beam for the thickness and length of it. And his spear's head, the head of the spear, weighed 600 shekels of iron. I mean, you're talking about like a 20-pound spearhead on this thing. So you can imagine what the weight of the spear would be because it's supporting that thing. And so he stood then, and I mean, this is intimidating to say the least, right? He stands and he comes and he says, why have you come out to draw up for battle? Am I not a Philistine and are not you servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves and let him come down to me. If he's able to fight with me and kill me, then we'll be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall... Be our servants and serve us. And then he says, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. When Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. Remember, Saul's the biggest guy there in Israel. He is the biggest guy. Remember when, when well, maybe we didn't go through all that. It is in the daily lessons. But, but what we're told at one point is that Saul was literally head and shoulders above everybody else. Physically, he was that tall. He he would have been the he would have been the champion of Israel in the same way that Goliath steps forward in this way. But Saul, he, he he's he's not going to step into this battle. He is greatly afraid, along with all his men. And so then 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 we start hearing about David, and it tells us for whatever reason was the son of an Ephrathite of Bethlehem in Judah named Jesse, who had eight sons. And then uh, we already knew that because he got anointed last week and we were told about those sons. So in the days of Saul, the man, Jesse, was already old and advanced in years, and the three oldest sons had followed Jesse into the battle, or followed Saul to the battle, and the names of his three sons who went to the battle were Eliab, the firstborn, and then Abinadab, and then the third is Shammah. And David was the youngest, and the three oldest followed Saul but David went back and forth from Saul to feed his father's sheep at Bethlehem. For 40 days, the Philistine came forward and took the stand morning and evening, and nobody stepped out to fight him. David's going back and forth from the line back to his father, but he's not fighting. He's feeding the sheep. And so what, he, what is he doing going back and forth? And then we're told, Jesse said to David, his son, Take for your brothers an ephah of this parched grain and these ten loaves and carry them quickly to the camp to your brothers. He's sending them food to eat. They're just there every day watching this giant come out and, and call them out. Also, take these ten cheeses to the commander of their, the brothers, thousands. See if your brothers are well and bring some token from them. I need to know, are they doing well? They need to send back something to show me that they're well. I mean, all this actually recalls something else it recalls the story of Jacob and Joseph because Jacob sends his son Joseph to go out and give a report of his brothers and so there's so many similarities in this story between the two of these we've got Israel at later time at the end of Deuteronomy we've got Israel standing on one mountain and and, and the blessings and curses are pronounced from two separate mountains but here it sounds very much like Jacob and Joseph when Jesse sends the young'un out to check on the older ones and see how they're doing 
And so then Saul and all the men of Israel were in the valley of Elah fighting with the Philistines. And David rose early in the morning and left the sheep with a keeper and took the provisions and went as, as his father Jesse had commanded him. Now, we can get this thing done in a hurry, right? I mean, if anybody will step up and fight Goliath, then, then we're done. One way or another, we're done. Now, the Israelites, none of the men in the army had enough faith to say, it's not down to me to win this. It's, it's down to God. The battle belongs to the Lord. And so David comes to the encampment as the host was going out to the battle line shouting the war cry. I mean, after 40 days, wouldn't you get pretty tired of this, right? I mean, you get tired of this whole scene. 40 days of going out and this champion calls out Israel and nobody goes out to meet him. And they drew up for battle, army against army, and David left the things in charge of the keeper of the baggage, the things being the food, and ran to the ranks and went and greeted his brothers. And he talked to them and the champion came out Goliath came out of the ranks and spoke the same words as before, and David heard him. It's the first time we're told that David hears this. And all the men of Israel, when they saw the man, fled from him and were much afraid. And the men of Israel said, Have you seen the man who has come up? Surely he has come to defy Israel. Of course he did. He's done it for 40 consecutive days. And the king will enrich the man who kills him with great riches and will give him his daughter and make his father's house free in Israel. I mean, lots and lots of encouragement here. <laughs> You're going to get great parting gifts if you go out there and fight and kill Goliath. But nobody believed that was even possible, and so nobody ever came forward. And David said, what shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes the reproach from Israel? Now, that line right there, the, take the reproach from Israel, that's what Joshua did. And at the place called Gilgal, he takes the reproach from Israel. The reproach then was their inability for fear to enter the land after they sent out the spies, and they spent 40 years in the wilderness. David says, we've been 40 days here in this place, and, and you're allowing this guy to taunt you. You guys are like the generation in the wilderness. You're afraid. You're afraid to do what God called you to do. You're afraid of this man because there's a giant in the land. I mean, he's going to take the reproach away permanently here as David's goal. Remember what it was that kept them out of the land for those 40 years? It was the fear of the inhabitants of the land who were giants. And so the spies, other than Joshua and Caleb, caused the people to have fear and wouldn't enter the land. And so David's looking at this same thing, and is he going to step up and be Joshua now and enter the land? So they tell him <clears throat> what's going to be done for the man, for this, who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? And the people answered him in the same way, so shall it be done to the man who kills him. So then his brothers become angry at him. And they said, why have you come down here? With whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? we are did you hear that the wilderness there's all these allusions to israel history here i know your presumption and the evil of your heart for you've come down to see the battle you've come down to be a spectator i know what you are you're not really interested you're not even taking care of the sheep you've come down here because you wanted to see what was going on that's all you're really here for and again the brothers turn on him just like the brothers turned on joseph I mean, I'm telling you, so many echoes of Israel's history here, it's unbelievable. David said, what have I done now? 
Was it not but a word? And he turned away from him toward another and spoke in the same way, and the people answered him as before. This is what's going to be done for the man who, who goes out and kills this. And David says, hey, don't let anybody's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight this Philistine. Saul said to David, you're not able to go against the Philistine to fight him. You're but a young man, and he has been a man of war from his youth. So you're a youth, and he's been a, a, a man of war since he was a youth. But David said to Saul, your servant used to keep sheep for his father. And there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock. I went after him and I struck him and I delivered it out of its mouth. And if he arose against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears. And this uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them, for he has defied the armies of the living God. In other words, I have a history in God. And my history in God tells me that I can't be afraid and I shouldn't be afraid because I can do all things through Christ. He wouldn't have said that, but through the one who strengthens me. And that is God. I have no fear because I've been in situations like this where, where the enemy that I had to fight was bigger than me, but my God was with me and that was more than enough. And David said, the Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, go and the Lord be with you. And Saul, as I told you, he's head and shoulders above everybody else. He clothes David in his armor because that giant has armor and you're going to need armor, little fella. So he put a helmet of bronze on his head, cloth, cloth of ma uh, coat of mail. David put his sword on over his armor. He tried in vain to go for he hadn't tested them. I mean, at this point, it, this would have been comical looking for David to put on Saul's armor because he's so much smaller. And he tried in vain to go, for he had not tested them. And then David said to Saul, I can't go on with these. I haven't tested them. David knew, though, what he had tested. He had his own weapons, and he knew, because he had that history in God, he knew what he could depend on and what he could rely on. And so he takes the stuff that he's used and that he's accustomed to, the things that he's comfortable with, and he goes in. And the Philistine looks at David, and he disdained him, for he was a youth ruddy and handsome in appearance. And the Philistine said to David, am I a dog that you come after me with sticks? Because David's got his sling and, and five smooth stones that he had chosen from the brook. And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. His gods, when they capture the ark later, what's going to happen is, is the, the, that his god, Goliath's god, is going to fall before David's God before the ark and in a posture of worship before the ark. It's going to happen two different times. His gods are meaningless things made with hand. And the Philistine said to David, come to me and I'll give your flesh to the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. And David said to the Philistine, I mean, this is, this is like pro wrestling here, right? David says, you come to me with a sword and with a spear and a javelin. And I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defiled this day that the Lord will deliver you into my hand and I will strike you down and cut off your head. So remember what Goliath said, I'll give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field. Here's David. David even excels in smack talk over Goliath. I'll give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and the beasts of the earth. Goliath said, I'm going to give your flesh to the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. David says, I'm going to give the host of the Philistines' bodies 
to the birds of the air and the beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there's a God in Israel and that this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with sword and spear. This assembly being both armies, not just the Philistine army, but also Israel's armies because they've been depending on that and they couldn't bring it against Goliath. The battle is the Lord's and he will give you into our hand. When the Philistine arose and came and drew near to meet David, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. And here's the last verse we read. David put his hand in his bag, took out a stone, slung it, struck the Philistine on his forehead. The stone sank into his forehead and he fell on his face to the ground. David hit the only place that wasn't covered by, by armor and ended it in one verse. 48 verses build up, one verse ends it. That's the way it goes. I mean, we had so much build up with Will's thing from, from doctors day after day after day after day. And then they weaned him off the ventilator and then weaned him off the, um, the stuff that they were using to keep him down. And boom. He's, he's messing with the nurses with his sense of humor, which was a bad thing at that moment. But he did it because he didn't know. But do we have that kind of faith? that we're willing to step into whatever battle it is that's there because we know the battle belongs to the Lord. And we know it isn't up to us ultimately. You know, we had all kinds of doctors. We had all kinds of other things, but we knew from the beginning this wasn't about the doctors. They were great. We were not disappointed in the doctors, but they know and we know that he didn't. they didn't heal him. In fact, the best thing that happened when he was in the hospital was when they stopped trying to overdiagnose and overtreat and they gave him rest. While they were treating him very aggressively for different things, there was no forward momentum. The day they stopped aggressively treating and aggressively diagnosing, frankly, the better he got. I would give these updates, and I would say it's another quiet day, and that's a good thing in a minute. Because the days that were not quiet leading up to that were hard days. And so... God did the healing. He used them. There's no question he used them. He needed the ventilator and he needed all this other stuff. But the reality is once they stopped aggressively trying to make him better, the more God did and the more that God made him whole and the more that we began to rejoice and we began to see the victory and the battle belong to him. And that was the important lesson to learn. And I, and I hope, I just hope, that some of them saw that as well. Paul knew that, right? Because in this passage from 2 Corinthians 6, 1 to 13, Paul says, we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, in a favorable time, I listened to you in a day of salvation, I've helped you. And then Paul says, behold, now is the favorable time, which is exactly what Jesus said in Luke 4, right? He steps into the synagogue. He asks for the scroll to be given to him. He reads from Isaiah 61 about all the things that would happen in the day of the Lord. And he said, that day is today. And then he sat down. That's what Paul says. Behold, now, now is the favorable time. Now is the day of salvation. Don't delay. Can't you see it? I see it. It's today, he says. Step into it. Believe that. It's exactly the challenge that Jesus presented there in the synagogue in Capernaum that day. It's here. Do you have the faith to believe that? And that's what Paul's saying. He says, we don't put an obstacle in anybody's way so that no fault can be found in our ministry. And then he says the most bizarre set of things that any modern American Christian would ever hear. 
We commend ourselves in every way, in great endurance, in afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labor, sleepless nights, and hunger. You know, I'm reasonably certain that that most of the really, really popular uh, preachers in American culture today would never say the way I commend myself as a servant of the living God is an affliction or hardship or calamities or beatings or imprisonments. No, there's something wrong with your Christianity because you don't understand. You're supposed to prosper. Your whole life should be so simple. It's a testament to God's blessing on your life. But Paul never says that. He boasts of his weakness. And his boast is we continue and we persevere in spite of all these things, all this stuff that's arrayed against us. And I know Christians right now who are saying, you know, if, 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 if the Democrats get their way, what's going to happen is there's going to be persecution on the church. So I think that must mean the rapture is imminent. Really? You, you believe any of that statement that I just read? If the Democrats have their way, whatever. Why in the world are you so tied up in politics that you believe God's a Republican? I don't believe he's either. But you think a little bit of persecution coming to the church is going to bring about the rapture? Oh my gosh, what do you think Paul had to deal with? Get over it. I mean, that's how pathetic American Christianity is today. We have no sense of history and we have no sense of even reality in many places today. But if it comes to America... We're going to wilt in the sun. It's absolutely unbelievable. But Paul boasts in these things. He says, he says this is how we prove ourselves, is that we persevere in spite of all this. And then he says, by purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, the Holy Spirit, genuine love, truthful speech, and the power of God. I mean, it just goes on and on. We're treated as imposters and yet true, as unknown, yet well-known, as dying, and behold, we live, as punished and yet not killed, as sorrowful, yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich, as having nothing yet possessing everything. That would just be so confusing to so many prosperity preachers is absolutely beyond belief. And I just wonder, is the church prepared for any of that? Are we prepared to suffer? Are we prepared to even give things up? Jesus confronts the rich young ruler and he tells him, you've got to sell everything you have and give it to the poor. I don't want it that bad. That being what he asked for originally. How do I inherit eternal life? And he says, and the way you inherit eternal life is to give up your earthly inheritance and give it to the poor and come and follow me. And he says, no, I can't do that because I have great wealth. You know who did get it? Zacchaeus. He was a man of great wealth too. When Jesus called him to come out of that tree because he said, I must go to your house today. He doesn't even confront him in his sins. Zacchaeus just says, I'll give away half of everything I own to the poor, and if they've stolen anything from anybody or gotten anything by deception, I'll pay it back fourfold. He, he wanted eternal life. He wanted salvation. And that's what Paul's saying here. How much do you want it? Are you willing to suffer for it? Are you willing to die for it? Do you recognize that it's the greatest thing you could ever have, and sometimes it costs you everything on earth to have it? Are you ready for that? Is the church ready for that? I don't think so. He says, we've spoken freely to you, Corinthians. Our heart is wide open. You're not restricted by us, but we're restri you're restricted in your own affections. In return, I ask you to widen your hearts also. We've widened our hearts. We'd ask you to widen yours. Receive us, love us, 
treat us as brothers. Paul knew that unbelief is the thing that, that keeps us quiet, that keeps us tame, that keeps us in bondage, frankly. It keeps us in the same place the Israelites were. They served the living God who had delivered them from the Egyptians, had brought them into the land and, and overseen the conquest of the land by people who'd been living in the wilderness for 40 years, for God's sake. And what happens is now, here we are not too terribly many generations later, and they're afraid of this one guy and nobody will go into battle against him. They're in bondage. They don't even own that part of their own land anymore because of fear. Too often, man, we live in fear. Like I said, I've heard it too often lately. It bugs me. No end to hear this stuff. And, and then here we go into the gospel now, Mark 4, 35 to 41. On that day, when evening had come, he said to them, let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took with them a boat in the boat, just as he, him with them in the boat, just as he was. And other boats were with him, and a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. This is a lot like Jonah. Because remember in, in the story of Jonah, before the great fish gets involved, he too is in a boat with a bunch of people in a big storm raging outside. And they're calling out to their gods to deliver them, and the storm continues to rage. And what they do, then they find Jonah asleep. And they say, come on, sleeper, get up, come out. The rest of us are crying out to our gods. You need to do the same. And then he finally says, yeah, it's because of me that all this is happening. You can throw me into the sea, and that will appease God, and the storm will stop. He wouldn't do it himself. He didn't have the courage, but it also preserved him the right to say, I didn't take my life. They threw me in. But Jesus is asleep on the cushion, and this storm is breaking out, and everybody else is losing their minds. And so they wake him up, and they say, Teacher, don't you care that we're perishing? And there's such an irony in that that it is the richest irony you could ever ever hear. People looking at Jesus and saying, Don't you care that we're perishing? Why do you think I'm even here? You have no idea how much you're actually perishing and how much I care that you're perishing. My whole purpose for being here is because you've already died in your sins. And I've come to save you from far more than this storm. And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased and there was a great calm. That'll get your attention. <laughs> he said to them, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? So the wind and the sea were calm, but, the, but after he calmed it, they were more afraid. But they weren't afraid of that. They were afraid of him. They were filled with great fear and said to one another, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? We'll go back to Genesis 1 and you'll know who, who the wind and the sea obey. He's God. It's a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But he's also the God who loves you enough to come and save you. He's the one who is the lover of your soul.
Yes, you're perishing. We're all perishing. And we cling to him because he's already saved us from perishing. He saved us into eternal life. You've died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. That's who you are. Start acting like it. Get over the fear. Walk in faith. Trust him. Believe in him. And you'll see great things. I honestly believe that.